Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Okay, so as you can see up on the screen, we're talking about being under construction. I just want to encourage you, we are, as I've been sharing for the last couple of weeks, we are a community under construction. So when you're part of this community, you can let your hair down, you can be yourself, you don't have to put your best foot forward. You can just uh, relax and be yourself because everyone in this community is under construction. Okay? Uh, and what's happening around us, you know, in this building which is under construction, uh, and it looks so nice now that they have the plastic off the windows. I, I quite like it. I think it's just symbolic of what is happening in each of our lives in, and in us as, as families and in us as a community uh, is that we are under construction. We are being constructed by God. Uh, into what he wants us to be. And we will be under construction for the rest of our lives. Okay? So uh, wear your spiritual heart hat and, and uh, safety boots. <laughs> You're in a construction site. But, you know, don't, don't try. You don't have to feel like you have to dress yourself up or, or look better than you are. You know, we understand that everyone here is under construction. So we're not here to impress one another. We're here to be constructed by God. And... Um, yeah, it's um, just a little feedback maybe. Uh, I've already showed this picture a few times of uh, you know, how the foyer burned down and, and how we had to start uh, just doing some renovations. And um, what will happen next probably is that uh, uh, we, we're done with the painting and the windows, but um, uh, we'll, we'll probably by next week put in the vents at the bottom and we've got uh, solar-powered whirlies that we want to put on the roof to just get the ventilation a bit better. Um, and... Uh, then when you fall asleep, you can't, you know, I, I don't have any excuses, you know. Then it's not the ventilation. Then it's my bad preaching, you know. <laughs> We're going to read from, from Nehemiah chapter 2. Actually, I'm just going to read the last verse of chapter 1 uh, and then the first 10 verses um, of chapter 2. And I want you to notice a tension at the center of that passage. Uh, Nehemiah is someone who, like most of us, works in the world. He works for the king of Persia, so he serves the king of Persia, but he also serves the God of heaven. So it's like, in a sense, he lives in two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. He works in the city of Susa, which is the capital of Persia, but he wants to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, which, which is the capital of God's, um, of God's people in, in, the old, uh, in the Old Covenant, and, and which represents the church in many ways. It represents God's uh, God's people. So, so let's just um, read that. I'm starting in Nehemiah 1 verse 11. It says, uh, this is part of Nehemiah's prayer. It says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and let the prayer of your servants who, uh, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. So this man that he's talking about there is the king, the king of Persia. Uh, it says, in the month of the sun, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to him. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king said to me, what do you want? 
Then I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I, might, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, How long will your journey take and when will you, be, when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because... The gracious hand of my God was on me. The king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army of officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Yes, Lord God, we just thank you this morning that... Your word is so relevant, Lord God, so powerful, so instructive, Lord. Even thousands of years later, after it was written, Lord God, this example of Nehemiah still speaks to us, still instructs us, um, still has so much to say about us, Lord. He faces so many of the same challenges that we face on a daily basis. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will come and use this example to instruct us and give us your wisdom in how to live in this world while living for you at the same time. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Okay, so, you know, as you read that text, you can sort of feel the tension between the work, you know, the whole thing of, of, you know, Nehemiah works for the king of Persia, but he's also working for the God of heaven. He's, He's working in the city of the world, but he also wants to go and rebuild the city of God. Okay, and what I like about Nehemiah is that he's a normal working man like most of you. You know, he's, he's not a pastor like me. He's not a priest. He's not a prophet. He's not a king. He, he occupies no official position in God's kingdom. He's just a plain, ordinary, garden variety working guy. Okay? And it's amazing if you read the rest of the book how God uses this relatively ordinary guy. Okay, he's got serious leadership skills. That comes out as well. But, but uh, how God uses him... And how he, well he deals with this tension between working for the king of Persia and working for the, for the God of heaven. And just a few things that we see in this passage um, is the, the tension between working for God and the king and then relating to God and the king, how Nehemiah does that and what we can learn from him. And then a, a, a few contrasts between God and, and the king. So let me um, just get back to the, to the scripture. Sorry. One of, one of the things I want you to note is just the three mentions of God and the king. If you look at, at that first uh, part of the scripture, you see it, it mentions the Lord, and then it says this man, give me favor with this man, and this man turns out to be the king. So the, Nehemiah is praying to God about the king, saying, praying to God and saying, give me favor with the king. Okay? And then if you go on to the next um, page, it says, beautiful portion here, it says, so it says, I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. 
I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. Okay? And already here we see a challenge to, to the way that we live at work. So often we'll answer the king, we'll answer our boss, but we never combine it with praying to the God of heaven. You know, we, we, we sometimes, we have a worldview that has a separation between the sacred and the secular, between the spiritual and the material. And Nehemiah didn't have that. To him, those integrated. His very worldview was that those two go together and they link with one another and the one influences the other. And that's why he prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king. Can you think about situations at your work where you need to pray to the God of heaven and answer the king? <laughs> or pray to the God of heaven before you answer the king, before you answer your boss. And then it goes on and it says, because of the gracious hand of my God that was on me, the king granted my request. And he sees the very reason for the favor he has with the king, the favor that he asked for, by the way, in his prayer, is that God's gracious hand was upon him and that God was granting him um, this favor. So what I want to look at is, firstly, um, how to deal with this tension between working for both, metaphorically, the king of Persia and the God of heaven. Working for an earthly boss and for a heavenly God. Working in the kingdom of the world and working in the kingdom of God. So... Um, we saw before that uh, uh, Nehemiah in chapter 1 was working in the city of Susa, which represents the world, but he had a deep concern for the city of Jerusalem, which represents the church. And we were saying that we need to, every calling starts with a concern. Every calling starts with a concern. If you avoid concern, you avoid your calling. Okay? So you need to embrace the concerns that God lays on your heart because the concern that God gives you is the seed that grows into your calling. And Nehemiah embraced that and he prayed about that and we looked at that in, in, in chapter 1 in previous weeks. How do you balance these two? How do you, how do you in the right way balance these two? Working in the world and working in the kingdom. Because the reality is you know, I, I'm, a, I'm an exception. I work full-time for the church. But almost all of you, in some way or another, have some other function where you work in the world, some job in the world, but you also work in the kingdom. You also serve in the church, in God's kingdom. Okay? And what, one of the things that I, I think we see here with Nehemiah that we mustn't miss is that both of those are your calling. It's not like you work in the world so that you can go and fulfill some other calling in the kingdom, in the church. That's not how it works. The work you're doing in the world is part of your calling. So most people have two callings. They have a calling in the kingdom of the world and they have a calling in the kingdom of God. They have a calling in Susa and they have a calling in Jerusalem. They have a calling serving the king of Persia and they have a calling serving the God of heaven. And both are their calling. Don't look down on the work that you do in the world and think that's not my calling. That's just what I have to do to survive so that I can fulfill my calling in the church. That's not accurate. You're missing, if you have that view, you're missing a big part of your calling. You're missing a big part of the good that God can do. And it was so wonderful when Marlene brought that word that when we work in the world, we want to, what's the purpose for which we work? We're created to reflect the image of God, to be like God. So we need to show people the love of God and help people to love God as well. 
And that's part of our calling in the world. It, it goes deeper than that as well, but, but that's a, a very important part of it. So we see that Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king in, verse 11, in, in chapter 1, verse 11. He says he was cupbearer to the king. Now, the cupbearer was a guy who tasted all the food before the king ate it to check if there was poison. Because one of the biggest dangers, if you were a king or some other high official, is that you get poisoned in those days. If someone wanted to assassinate you, they'll give you poison. And we have some examples in ancient literature of this actually happening. There's this one king who uh, this guy tried to poison him, and uh, he, he got you know, wind of, of what was going on, and he made this guy drink the cup in front of him, and he drank his own poison and, and died. But that's why most kings had a cupbearer. So the cupbearer would taste the, the wine and, in fact, taste all the food before the king um, tasted it. So I think that's quite instructive. So I'm, I'm just going to go through a few things that this says to us. So the, the, the cupbearer, obviously, he, he, he didn't just taste the food, but because he, was, he put his life on the line to taste the food, and if there was poison in the, in the wine or whatever, he would, he would die and, 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 and the king would live the king would give him authority over the whole food chain. So it wasn't just like I attend the parties, you know, and I sip the drinks, you know, to make sure it's not poison. He had control of the entire food chain, the whole preparation of sourcing the food to preparing the food to bringing the food to the king. Well, if you're going to put your life on the line for the food, then you kind of want that kind of control, you know. So, so, so Nehemiah, I mean... It, Cupbearer could sort of give you a, the wrong idea that it was just someone who attended parties, you know, and, and sort of took a sip of the wine. He tasted all the food, but he was responsible for the entire food chain, for the whole preparation process. He, and, and now you can imagine if your life was on the line based on the quality of the food and, and, and you know, that the food wasn't poisoned, you would make sure that you got the best food and that you had people you could trust working with the food, you know, sourced it from trusted uh, sources, um, you know, guys who prepared it, who you could trust, etc. And that's exactly, obviously, what, what the king wanted. And he was also a confidant of, of, the, of the king. The king would trust him. He'd, he'd be very close to the king. And very few people were allowed close to the king. But the cupbearer was, so he was a confidant. And he talked to the king often, because he'd be at all the parties where the king was. He'd spend a lot of time with the king. Whenever the king had a, a drink, he, he was there. So he was there the whole time. So you know, it spilled over into being a counselor of the king as well. So you had to be a wise person. You had to be a wise person, not just a fool, you know, someone who could talk to the king and, give the, and in fact, give the king advice. Um, and and you, you, you would also be, be someone who had great authority. Let me just read you a, a passage, um, if I can find it here. This is, this is from Tobit. Now, Tobit is one of the apocryphal books, so it's not scripture, but it you know, it's just a historical um, thing that tells us a little bit about Kabez. It says, Ahikar interceded for me, and I returned to Nineveh. Now, Ahikar was chief cupbearer. Okay? He was chief cupbearer to the king, just like Nehemiah was to King Artaxerxes. It says, and he was keeper of the signet. And he was in charge of administration of the accounts under King Sennacherib of Syria. The, the, which was the previous king, uh, and then King. So um, Ezar Hadan, which was uh, King Sennacherib's uh, son, reappointed him as, as as all of those things. So he was cupbearer. He was a, responsible for the food, but he also was the keeper of the signet. The signet ring was this, the the thing that the, the king basically used to sign official documents into law. So they drip wax on it, and then he, he dipped the signet ring. So he carried the ring. So the king didn't even carry the ring. 
he, the cupbearer, carried the ring, and, and, he, and, and, and the king said, okay, sign this document for me, you know, of, uh, you know, make this document official. And then he was responsible for all the administration. So you can see this is a, a, a position of high authority. Now, what does that tell us about, about Nehemiah, if he was such a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the king of the greatest empire of that time, the Persian Empire? It tells us a few things. Firstly, it tells us that he was a very competent administrator. He was very competent and skilled at running the whole food chain process, but maybe he even had other administrative duties. So he was a competent person. He was really skilled. He wasn't a, a lazy or, um, you know, someone... He'd obviously developed certain serious skills that brought him to that position. Secondly, he had impeccable character. He must have had a track record of real integrity that convinced the king, I can trust this guy with my life. Okay? That, that's quite telling, you know. Do we live and work so, as hard as Nehemiah did to develop the competence to do our work well? To develop the character, to develop a track record of integrity that, that, that makes people say, this, this man, this woman can be trusted. I want to appoint them into positions of authority. That's not what Nehemiah did. Secondly, he was a wise counselor, clearly. The king could trust his advice, and the king would often seek his advice, and that's why I wanted him to spend so much time with him. Now, think about this. Nehemiah was a Jew, and the king knew he was a Jew. He wasn't a Persian. Although he was born in Persia, he wasn't born in Jerusalem. He'd never been to Jerusalem or to Judah before. He was born in Persia. And he spoke Persian, obviously, fluently and all of that. But he was a Jew, and the king knew he was a Jew. And he said, you know, I want to go back to J Jerusalem, you know, where my ancestors are buried and rebuilt the kingdom. He said, what? You're a Jew? How did this happen? How did we manage to appoint a Jew as the king? The king knew he was a Jew. And if Nehemiah, as a foreigner was so trusted by the king of Persia that this man would entrust his life to him. What does that say about the way in which Nehemiah served in his court? Every time Nehemiah tasted the king's cup and tasted his food, he risked his life for his boss. Are you willing to risk your life for your boss? <laughs> I, I think Nehemiah's commitment... <laughs> And the commitment, the integrity, the competence with which the sacrifice with which he served in the world would probably put most of us to shame. Here's a guy, you, you, you have to look up at him and say, wow, this is impressive. This guy is not holding back. He's serving someone who's not even, a, you know, a, a, one of the people of God, but he's serving him sacrificially at the, at the risk of his life. So, God also used, clearly, the skills that Nehemiah developed while he was serving the king of Persia, while he was serving in the city of Susa, to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So whatever you learn, whatever skills and character you build in the world, God uses it in his church as well. And it says, the Bible says in the New Testament, if you have not been unfaithful with unrighteous mammon, who will trust the true riches to you? If you have not been faithful with what is someone else's, who will give you what is your own? God is very interested in the way that we serve in the world. He's very interested in the way that we, serve, that we work in our secular jobs. He wants us to do it in a way that represents him, 
that represents His character, that represents His competence, that, repre- that, that lives out the gifts that He gave us to the glory of His name, and that serves other people sacrificially like Nehemiah did. So, the work in Susa and the, and the work um, at Jerusalem were both Nehemiah's calling. And um, the problem, the thing was, Nehemiah, because of his competence, because of his character, because of his wise counsel, because of all those things, the, the, the sacrificial way in which he served, he got a lot of influence with the king of Persia. And he used that influence to serve the God of heaven. He had a lot of influence in the city of Susa, and he used that influence to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Do you ever think, how can I use the influence I have at work to build God's church? Because that's also part of your calling. Part of your calling might be to, to, to just do good work, to do good programming, to give good financial advice, uh, to, to teach children in school well, to, to, to be an excellent doctor who actually saves people's lives and make the, makes their quality of life better. It may, may be all of that, but it's also using the influence you get by doing that well to build God's kingdom. And the problem is sometimes there's resistance from the world. Even if you're doing your calling in the world well, there's sometimes resistance from the world and the people of the world for you to use that influence and to also fulfill your calling in the kingdom, in the church. Okay? And that's why Nehemiah prayed. That's why Nehemiah had to pray. Okay? And that's the, the second thing we're going to look at, relating to God and the king. You know? um, and Nehemiah prayed to the God of heaven and he answered the king of Persia. And, and we see two things working together here. And I just want to... Uh, you know, I said a little bit about it in a previous session, but I just want to expand on it a bit more. We see prayer and planning and how they work together. Okay? Prayer and planning and how they work together. And I think this is quite telling and, and very instructive. So, Nehemiah prayed for quite a long time before he spoke to the, to the king of Persia. In chapter 1, we see he starts in, in, a, in a month of Kislev, um, and he starts praying. And one of the things he prayed, and we read that, is, Lord, give me favor today with this man, the king, that, I, that I'm cupbearer to. Give me favor uh, this day with the man. But only in the month of the sun, which is four or five months later, does he actually get a chance to speak to the king. So what's going on here? Some of, some of the, the more skeptical um, you know, commentators say, yeah, you know, the, whoever was editing this got it wrong. You know, and they, he says, you know, give me favor today, but it's only four or five months later, you know, that, that he speaks to the king, you know. So this guy wasn't a good editor, and there's a bit of a contradiction here. No, there's not. I mean, it's always interesting to me how when people say that, they miss the point of what Scripture is saying. That prayer that Nehemiah prayed, give me favor this day with the king, was the pray, prayer he prayed every day for those four to five months in which he was waiting for an opportunity I mean, it's very likely that King Artaxerxes was the very king who in Ezra, the previous book in the Bible, chapter 4, gave the commands which led to Israel, to Jerusalem's walls being burnt down and Jerusalem being in the disrepair. So he's going to ask the guy who possibly, very probably even, caused the problem if he can go and be the solution to the problem. Okay? And he was... He was going to ask him to give him a leave of absence and say to him, listen, yeah, at your cost, I'm, I'm your servant. 
I'm at your service. I want you to send me as your servant to go and do God's work. And he needed favor for that. And he prayed for it every day for four to five months. And then, yes, this, this really gets me. This is very interesting. So, so first thing I want to say is we need to pray. If we're working in a secular job, we need to pray for the favor so that our bosses will give us the space to use our energy, to use our time, to use our resources to bless the kingdom. We should even pray, that, like Nehemiah clearly did, that they would be, even if they don't serve God, that they'd be willing to provide resources that can build the kingdom, that can rebuild uh, Jerusalem. For some of you, you know, you look at Nehemiah, he's, he's praying you know, to go and rebuild Jerusalem we, and be the governor of Jerusalem, which is a 12-year project. That's a big concession the king needs to make. And some of us struggle to pray for the favor to just get off work on a Wednesday and on normal time so we can go to small group to build God's kingdom in that way. But maybe that's where you need to start. Maybe you, because here's the thing. The world is going to take advantage of you. Your, your boss wants his pound of flesh. A business wants to make profit. So the reality is most businesses, if they can, they are going to ask more of you than, than even sometimes is fair. And, 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 and you know that. Now, obviously, you want to serve and even go the extra mile with your business. But, but you know, bosses who, who, who are not Christians are often going to require so much of you that you don't have any time or energy to be involved in the church. And if they're doing that, then they're asking too much of you. Because then you're fulfilling your calling in the world at the expense of your calling in the kingdom, in the church. Okay? And then you need to pray for favor and say, God, give me favor with my boss. And then go to your boss and say, boss, I don't mind working overtime. You know I'm committed to this company. I want to see it thrive uh, and do well. But on a Wednesday, I'm committed to small group. I want to go to small group. So on a Wednesday, I'm, I don't want to work overtime. Um, and, and the Lord, we saw he answered Nehemiah's prayer. Why won't he answer your prayer? But here's the thing that gets me. Nehemiah prayed, and it says five, four, five months later, the king asked him, why are you sad? Now it was legally forbidden to be sad in the presence of the king of Persia. It was one of the Persian laws. Because the idea was that the king is such a wonderful man, you know, that he'll just sort of... You know, all your burdens would lift around him. You'd just be happy around him. It's such a privilege to be around him. And, and, and if you are unhappy around him, it's a, it's a slap in his face. It's an insult to him. And it, it literally, it was legally not allowed to be sad in the presence of the king. You could lose your head. You could die for it. Okay? And here comes Nehemiah, and he's sad in the presence of the king. And it's ironic that God uses a moment of weakness when he can't hide his sadness to give him the favor that he prayed for. Not a moment of strength, but a moment of weakness to give him the favor that he prayed for. Okay? And God sometimes answers prayers in other ways, but I want to say even sometimes more often than not, God makes us the answer to our own prayer. Like God did with Nehemiah. You know? He, he allows him in a moment of weakness to show his sadness, but he uses that. And it obviously prepared the king's heart for it. God had been working behind the scenes. The gracious hand of, 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 of Nehemiah's God was on the king. And the king had compassion. And, he, and instead of punishing him for breaking the law, he grants him uh, his request. So um, also notice that when Nehemiah prays for favor, 
he does long prayers and short prayers. In, the, in chapter 1, we see him fasting and praying this long prayer, you know, deep intercession. But then when the king says, why are you so sad? What does he do? Softly, under his breath, the king doesn't even notice it. He prays to the God of heaven. And we should be in our workplace and for our workplace being playing long prayers and short prayers. Prayers at home and prayers right there in the moment. And prayer should be an integral part of our work. But, but not only prayer. Um, often we think prayer and planning are opposed to one another. But if Nehemiah had only prayed, well, if he had not prayed, he would never have had the opportunity, the favor, to actually ask, to, to make his request. Okay? But if he had prayed but not planned, then when he got the opportunity, when God answered his prayer and gave him the favor and gave him the opportunity to make his request, he wouldn't have known what to ask for because he hadn't planned for it. And Nehemiah's answer shows you that he had planned quite extensively. You know? In other words, pray and then plan as if, as if God's going to answer your prayer. <laughs> Hello? I mean, that's obvious, but we don't always think about it. We pray, but then we don't plan. Well, if you're not planning, do you really believe that God's going to answer your prayer? Shouldn't you plan for what you're asking for when it happens? Of course we should. I'm talking for myself here. I'm I'm the same as as most of you. I also also pray sometimes and I don't plan. Or sometimes I plan and I just jump in and I talk to someone, but I haven't prayed about it. And then I'm surprised that I don't get favor. And I don't, don't get a positive response. You, are you like that sometimes too? Okay, it's just me. Okay. <laughs> I'm preaching to myself here. Okay. <laughs> Notice he, he, he knows exactly what he's asking for. He says, send me. Send me to go and rebuild to do what? The, the who? Me? Send me to go and do what? To go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Um, when? He sets a time frame. He says, this is when I'm going to be back. This is when I'm going to go. This is when I'm going to be back. Um, he says, okay, how am I going to do it? I'm going to need timber and stuff. So, uh, and he's already researched the name of the, the keeper of the, of the uh, royal park, Asaph. He says, please send me a letter with Asaph. And you're going to send me to Trans-Euphrates, to, to Jerusalem? Please send me letters. So, so he's, he's planned meticulously. Now, now, what is planning? Just let me get a little practical here, maybe give you a, a tip or so. Planning is just mental time travel. Right? That's all it is. When Nehemiah planned, because he'd never seen Jerusalem, he only heard the report, its walls are broken down, its its gates are burned with fire. He'd he'd, he'd never seen Jerusalem. So how could he plan to repair it? Well, in his mind, he time-traveled, you know, to when he was going to be in Jerusalem. and And he sort of thought, okay, how will it look? What will be broken? How does a wall look? What do I need to rebuild a wall, to rebuild gates? Where am I going to stay? So mentally in his mind, he just time traveled. You know, when you plan a party, you do the same. You go, you time travel ahead to the party, and you think, okay, what are there? Okay, there, 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 there are, there's music in the background, so I, I need to get my CD player ready with my music. Um, you know, there, there are some snacks. Okay, so I need to buy food or make food or whatever. Um, there are people, you know, so... You plan this stuff. Okay, if I'm going to have food, I'm going to need plates. Okay, I'm not, going to, I'm not in the mood to wash plates. I'm going to get paper plates. <laughs> Something like that. But that's what you do. That's basically what planning is. You do mental time travel to the place 
where, where you're going to execute and you think, okay, what am I going to need when I'm there? It's really that simple. So he prayed to the God of heaven and then he answered the king of Persia because he had planned for it and planned well. And, and I really think here Nehemiah is a good example to us. So often as Christians, you know, you get two kinds of people. You get those who plan and you get those who pray. And sometimes those who pray are not very good at planning and, they, and they're sometimes lazy when it comes to planning. And those who plan are sometimes lazy when it comes to praying. But God wants us as Christians to be both. We need to be like, like Nehemiah. We need to pray and plan. If we want to fulfill our calling like Nehemiah fulfilled his calling, we need to pray and plan. Uh, and let's let Nehemiah be a, a challenge and an encouragement to us um, in that. And he says, because of the grace of God, the king granted his request in, in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 8. Okay, so let's, my, my, my encouragement here is, is let's leave behind this artificial separation between heaven and earth, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, between the city of Susa and the city of Jerusalem, between the sacred and the secular. Let's leave artificial separation behind it doesn't let's let's allow god through our prayers into our working place but let's also do our due diligence and and and, and do good planning and and then what we see what god doing and, and and here we see the relationship between god and, and the king not only how nehemiah relates to them but how they relate to one another it says because of the gracious hand of my god that was upon me the king granted my request the grace of god led to the granted request and, and here's the thing, God and Nehemiah and even Ezra, the book of Ezra before that, which are in the Jewish Bible 1, um, emphasizes this over and over. God influences the influences. God is the God who influences the influences, and therefore we must play, pray for the influences, like Nehemiah did, because God influences the influences. We should pray for the politicians. They have a big influence in South Africa. God influences the influences. Pray for your boss. God influences the influences. Pray for your father or your husband. Pray, pray for anyone who's in a leadership position in your life. Because God influences the influences. Okay? And in a sense, the king was an obstacle to Nehemiah fulfilling his, cons, uh, fulfilling his calling and, and acting on his concern to rebuild Jerusalem. But what we learn from this passage is that if you pray, like Nehemiah, if you pray, God will make a way for you to obey. Hey, I'm a poet and I don't even know it. Hey? <laughs> if, you, if you pray, God will make a way for you to obey. So if God lays something on your heart, it doesn't mean you have to do it immediately. So often, God lays something on our heart, we just jump in and we do it and it backfires and it's this big abortion and this big mess up. It's because we didn't pray. But if you pray... God will make a way for you to obey, like he did for Nehemiah. I think that's very encouraging. Um, okay, so lastly, the contrast between God and the king, and I want to finish with this. I um, just want to highlight a few things from, from, the, from the passage. Firstly, We all long for good leaders. We all long for a king who, number one, 
doesn't only share our concern for God's people, but who has a greater concern for God's people. See, Nehemiah had to share his concern with the king. And he had to ask the king to respond to his concern. Not the king's concern, but his concern. But wouldn't it have been nice if there were a king who had a greater concern than Nehemiah did for the people of God? We all long for a king who we can be ourselves around. Nehemiah had to be happy, even though he was sad, even though he had this deep concern and this sadness. He had to hide it for, seven, for four to five months. And then in the moment of weakness, he showed it, and the king responded, praise God, because of the favor of God, positively to it. But he could have lost his head, because normal kings, you're actually not allowed to be yourself around them. Wouldn't it be amazing if there was such a great king and you can actually be yourself around them? Be sad when you are sad. Be happy when you are happy. We all long for such a king. Not only that, we all long for a king that we have favor with. You don't have to worry, do I have favor with him? Or what must I do to get favor with him? Or must I really, you know, you know be careful and pick my words so that I can win his favor? Do I have to, have to impress him, you know? What if I'm having a bad day, you know? Will I lose favor with him? And there's a story about, in, in Genesis 40 and 41, about the cupbearer of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who lost favor with the king and ended up in the prison with Joseph. And him and the baker had dreams. And the baker uh, was executed. He lost his head. But the cupbearer eventually, according to uh, um, Joseph's interpretation, was, was reinstated as cupbearer. But he'd lost favor with the king. And he spent a few years in prison, or at least a few months in prison. Okay, but wouldn't it be nice to have a king who, even on your bad days, you still have favor with him? We all long for such a king. Nehemiah prayed for the king. He blessed the king. May the king live forever. Wouldn't it be nice to have a king that actually prays for you? Well, it's not just you praying for the king, but the king actually prays for you. We all long for a king. And yeah, I want to get to the crux of it. <laughs> See, Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king, which means every time he served the king, he put his life on the line. He risked his life to serve the king. Wouldn't it be nice to have a king who risked his life to serve you? Wouldn't it be nice to have a king, not that you're the king's cupbearer, but the king's actually your cupbearer? I mean, can you even hope for that? <laughs> Can you even long for that? Nehemiah says to the king, may the king live forever. Well, if there is such a king, wouldn't you want him to live forever? I think by now you all see where I'm going with this, right? Matthew 26, verse 39. Going a little farther... He, Jesus, fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. See, Nehemiah, on a daily basis, drank a cup that could have been a poison cup, that could have been a deadly cup, in order to save the life of his king. Here our king is, and there's a cup that is so deadly. I mean, Jesus wasn't a person, a weak person, a weakling. He wasn't someone given to fear and anxiety. 
But here, he sweats blood, or he sweats his like blood. Why? Because he knows how terrifying the cup is that, is, that, that we were supposed to drink, the cup of the judgment of Almighty God. And who can bear his judgment for even a moment? This is eternal judgment of God that needs to be poured out. So scary that even Jesus is terrified of it. He says, Lord, if it's at all possible, let this cup pass me on. Yet not my will, but your will be done. In other words, Lord, if, Father, if you want me to, I'll drink it on their behalf. I'll drink their cup. I'll be their cup bearer. I'll drink their poison. Not at the risk of my life, but at the cost of my life. Can you believe that the greatest king of all times wants to be your cup bearer, wants to drink your poison, wants to take your judgment? And not only that, Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. He does live forever. He is a king who does live forever. But what does he do with that eternal life? He makes perpetual intercession for us. He prays for us all the time that our salvation will be completed. You think the Father's going to answer Jesus' prayers? I think so. That's the king we all long for. That's the king we all need. And that's the, there's only one king who's like that. And that's King Jesus. The king who died for us. And the king who lives to make intercession for us. The king who is busy saving us. The king who loves us more than we love him. The king who risks more for us than we ever risk for him, than he ever asks us to risk for him. The king who doesn't send us to go and do the work of God, but who comes from heaven to earth to come and do the work of God for us and in us and through us. He's the king we're longing for. You know, maybe you're not a good manager like Nehemiah. I'm not. Maybe your life has become unmanageable. Maybe... (laughs) Instead of being a Nehemiah who is very competent and can manage things on behalf of the king, you need a competent king who can manage your life on your behalf. I know such a king. His name is Jesus. And he will do it. He has given his life to show you that he'll do it. And I think the challenge before us today is, are we willing to commit our lives to him to the extent that he commits his life to us? Are we willing to sacrifice for him? He'll never ask us to sacrifice more for him than he sacrificed for us. But let's sacrifice for him. A king who sacrificed that much for you, won't you sacrifice for him too? Won't you sacrifice your life, your time, your energy, your gifts? Don't you want to build his city when he says, come, let's go? Not, I'm going to send you to build the city, but come. I am busy building my church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build it at the cost of my life. Don't you want to build with him? Think about this. Jesus drank our cup and served us at the cost of his life when we didn't even appreciate it. Before we even served him, before we even belonged to him, before we even responded positively. If Jesus could do that for us, can't we do it for the people around us in the world? Can't we do it for the Artaxerxes in our lives? Can't we do it for our colleagues and and our boss, our employers? I think we can. I think we can follow Jesus' example. Let his example not only change you, but let it inspire you to go and do the same. 
Let's go and live in this world in a way that reveals Jesus to the world. Amen. I'm just going to pray God's blessing over you. Father God, I just pray your blessing over your people, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you don't love us because we are lovely, but that because you love us, you make us lovely in your sight. Thank you that you are such an amazing king. You are the king our hearts long for. You are the king we want to serve, not only for the rest of our lives, but for the rest of eternity. And I pray, Lord, that every one of us will experience you as the cupbearer king, the lover of our souls, the greatest who ever was, who ever will be, and that our lives will bring honor to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.